The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. I am so excited about this show. I can scarcely contain myself. Today we have Peter J. Brown, best known as the first mate to Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Some of you may have seen the show Whale Wars, and so you know, Peter, you know what a fun, fun guy he is. We have him on the show today because he's got a brand new documentary out called Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist, and we are thrilled to have him on. We're going to talk about the film. We're going to talk about some of the missions that he's been on alongside Captain Watson and his experiences over the last 30 years of being a part of this amazing crew. Actually, besides Captain Watson himself, Peter is the longest-standing member of the crew of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, so we are thrilled to have you on, Peter. (laughs) Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I've got to say, you, after seeing the film, and of course I've seen you, you know, in, in the whale wars and, and all kinds of stuff, but you are quite the mischief maker, and I mean that in the most complimentary way. <laughs> Give our listeners a little teaser overview of your new film, Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist. Just give us a thumbnail sketch of what to expect. Well, my film, uh, Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist, is a story of my 30 years involved in the environmental movement. Thirty years ago, when um, we started, Bob Hunter and Paul Watson, both uh, stars of my film, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. you know, put up a uh, a billboard that said "Ecology, look it up." And so, <laughs> thirty years ago, no one even knew what the word meant. Thirty years later, now, you know, even BP Oil's trying to be green. And so, in my opinion, we've gone a long way, baby. <laughs> and uh, yeah. this was my story of how we did it, or how I felt we did it. Well, and give us some idea, when you made this film, um, who you intended your audience to be. When you, in your mind, when you thought about this is the ideal viewer of my film, who would you have in mind? Well, I've been involved, um, I have two lives. I've actually have a television director in my real life, and my other life is the environmental movement. But when I used to speak at, um, you know, cocktail parties in Hollyweird, and um, would tell stories that everyone would have a ball listening to my funny stories about these major events which would have maybe just happened on the news or I had just come back from ramming a drift net vessel. And so, you know, people who knew me were asking questions about it. But the things they seemed to enjoy the most were the kind of funny stories about how we actually did it. Mm-hmm. And so I always said that when I re- would retire that I would make a film that kind of told my point of view. And my point of view was, you know, you have to first of all reach people with your message. And mm-hmm. the way you reach people is by entertaining them. And you can't, you know, you can't hit them over the head and you can't point your finger and you can't, um, you know, you have to show a little bit of the death and destruction, as I call it, because mm-hmm. 
you know, there are people out there, such as Paul Watson and others, that are risking their lives, and you need to let the audience know why it is they're doing that. So there is some of that. But on the end, in the whole, at the end of one of my films, or the end of even one of my television films that I do on everything, <laughs> from, you know, the circus to entertainment tonight to you name it, um, I want to make people feel good about the story I just told. And so I want people to leave the theater, not down and, you know, with their eyes crossed and, you know, wanting a drink. I want them to be excited about getting off the couch and doing something positive about the world. I mean, we weren't big-time heroes. We were just normal people who kind of hung in there for longer than everyone else and attracted a number of extremely talented, generally young people, generally <laughs> vegans, <laughs> and generally women, who uh-huh. uh, helped make it happen. Well, and, and you go into all that in the film. We're going we're gonna to walk through the film a little bit um, you know, as we go through the, the, the show, but I wanted you to tell us what it was like when you first met Paul Watson and uh, why you stayed with his crew so long. What was the draw? Well, the very funny thing is I was working for NBC at the time, a gentleman by the name of George Slaughter, um, who uh, I was doing stories for real people and other shows he was doing. And uh, I used to do a lot of the weird little stories for George, and he called me up and he said, there's this guy, Paul Watson, who claims he's going to go to Japan and ram a whaling ship. Um, <laughs> do you want to go do the story? And I said, yeah, sounds great. So anyhow, to make a long story short, he didn't go to Japan to ram a whaling ship. The Japanese government actually invited him to Japan to negotiate, which at the time was the Icky Island Dolphin Slaughter. It was mm. the pre-Taji thing that, you know, the Cove movie made famous. The Icky, they used to kill dolphins at Icky Island um, for years the same way. And so Paul was going to go over there and negotiate the end of this slaughter. Well, George Slaughter, no one told me, I got on an airplane and I met him in at Japan. And I remember sitting on the airplane going to myself, gee, I don't even know what this guy looks like. <laughs> I wonder if I'll even find him at the airport. Well, I get out at the airport and there's this, you know, he's, I don't know, he's six foot plus, you know, guy with white hair. He still had white hair back then pretty much in a mm-hmm. captain's uniform. And I figured that's got to be the guy, the only other, um, <laughs> you know, foreigner in the building. So yeah. we went over, we met. Um, actually, he had a police escort. So we had a police escort the whole time mm-hmm. that we were there. Uh, he actually negotiated the end of that slaughter, which lasted a good 20, 25 years, it seems to me. I, I think they started it up again, but I'm not quite sure. And um, Paul and, at the time, a gentleman by the name of Al Johnson and a Japanese translator who was a uh, stewardess on one of the airlines that was helping us out, um, left me at the airport, said goodbye, and I went back in through customs and they grabbed me. <laughs> and wanted to know who I was and what I was doing there. Oh, and uh, I did get out after, you know, a little bit of uh, a little bit of incarceration, and um, the story did get on the air, and um, I became friends with Paul. I mean, we would just, you know, we had a lot of uh, similar views on things, and um, quite frankly, I was in the media business, mm-hmm. which it seemed to me they needed help dealing with. Right. So, and so it- that's how we became friends. And I said, if you do this, let me know. If I'm available, and, you know, television pays you more than you're worth and makes you <laughs> worth less time than you really need to. <laughs> makes you So, uh, you know, whenever I was available, I would go on the trips 
do the filming at the time it used to be film. Um, thank God for gentlemen like George Slaughter because he'd let me process the film, which was very expensive. And then I would give it away so other people could do stories on Paul Watson and the Sea Shepherd Society. So That's that amazing. used to be my bit. You know, I would give it, give the footage away, and. Um, and I, uh, over the years, you know, I grew up on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and, you know, I know how to run a boat, so I started, you know, working the boat quite Yeah, quickly. you did. And there's some really cool footage in the in the film of you doing some Zodiac work, which is pretty hilarious. Um, well, I used you... to drive, in the old days when I was younger, I used to drive the Zodiacs, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the, and the background music, Everybody Must Get Stoned, um, is pretty, pretty hilarious. I mean, you really have this knack for juxtaposing, you know, tense conflict situations with, with humor. I mean, it, it was just so enjoyable to watch. And I was wondering, you know, you've got 30 years of footage of what's been going on with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. How in the world did you whittle it down to the stories that you told in the film? What was your process for picking which missions you would show in the film? Well, a very good friend of mine, Tim Huntley, who was the writer-editor on the film that we've worked together for 30 years in the film business, um, actually helped me on that. He's vicious. <laughs> um, and so, you know, together, the both of us went to my house on Cape Cod, and we edited the film. And, um, you know, he's, Tim's a clever, um, extremely talented uh, gentleman. And that's how we came to that. The hardest part was finding footage of me. You see, I mm-hmm. shot all the stuff, but... I had to go find people with home cameras and, and you know, I don't know. It was really difficult finding footage of me. Uh-huh. That was the hard part. And I had to have footage of me because it's really my story. It's, you know, there's been a yeah. million films on Paul Watson out there, and God love him. You know, I, Paul's a very good friend of mine, and I was just in Antarctica with him. So, um, but this would, this had to be my story, and so I needed footage of me. And I used to give my footage away. Like I said, there was one guy I gave footage to, and he did an hour film on Sea Shepherd. Sixty uh-huh. um, uh, percent of that film, something like forty something minutes of it, was footage I gave him, and he charged me twenty five hundred dollars for twenty seconds of me. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> that's gratitude for you. That's gratitude. That's nice. Well, I had to, I had to laugh. You know, I did it for the environmental movement. My filmmaking. You know, I used to. You know, I was a TV whore. I did anything. Um, <laughs> but you know, so what I did for my thing was for the environmental movement. Most of the people that did films on Sea Shepherd over the years were people like me. They were doing it because it was a good subject. I mean, God, the guy's uh, a great subject. And, yeah. you know, they did it to either make money or sell to TV or whatever the reason being that they did the film. I did it um, because I had something to say. <laughs> well, you sure did. And it came across loud and clear in the film, Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist. I was telling, sometimes I tell my listeners, you know, it's just not fair that you don't get to hear some of the conversations that we have offline uh, between myself and my guests. I was telling Peter uh, before we started the show, that my week was kind of bookended by two uh, wildlife preservation-themed movies. At the beginning of the week, I went to see We Bought a Zoo, and I loved it. I laughed, I cried, and my heart was just brimming over with love for the animals. Um, then, at the end of the week, I see Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist, but for, for a very different reason. It was just as wonderful, but very different. I laughed, I cried, and my heart was full of love for the animals. But I want you to talk, Peter, about how your film is so different and so unique um, from some of the other 
you know, feel good wildlife preservation movies and films that are out there, you strike a very different chord and yet you elicit the same emotion, I think, you know, out of your audience, but you do it in a very different way. Talk about, I know that was purposeful. So talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, well, first of all, like I said in the beginning, I think the important thing is you have to entertain people to get them to watch. I mean, you're asking people to watch a subject of which you care a lot about, and in this case I put 30 years into, so I really wanted to, to stay for the whole hour and a half, that I had to get them, give them a reason to stay, and, and my reason is always entertaining. Um, I've learned that in television, great uh, television producers like George Slaughter and, and writers like Tim Huntley who helped me on this film, taught me all of this. And so it's very important to get people hooked on it. And secondly, this is me. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years, too. And quite frankly, if I went with the attitude that people I see in movies go on these, mo- these uh, environmental films with such dour and, and disaster and danger over their head, you know, geez, I'd have killed myself 30 years ago. <laughs> I, have, I have to, I try to get the most out of every day, no matter what I'm doing. And if I'm, if I'm doing something that's important to me, like uh, protecting, I'm actually a conservationist, so protecting wildlife um, is important to me. When I'm doing something that's important to me, I love every minute of it. Um, I'm not thrilled sometimes when I have to stand up and put my tail end on the line or get hit by something or, or do something. But on the end, I am thrilled that I get the opportunity to go out there and make a difference. And in the things that we do with Sea Shepherd over 30 years and other groups I've been involved in, is we at least, I think, make a difference. Even now, although it's very difficult down in Antarctica for Sea Shepherd to stop Japanese whaling, I mean, I have my theories on why they're there. It has nothing to do with whaling. But in the end, the Sea Shepherd is there, and they're keeping the Japanese from killing whales. There are no, when I left a week ago, no whales had been killed, and over half the season was gone. Mm-hmm. So... No matter what one does, one has to get out and do something and try to have a good time doing it. If you went down there and for the last eight years, every Christmas in Antarctica, you went down there and it was like going to prison, I don't think I could do it. I certainly <laughs> couldn't do it with the attitude I try to do it with, which is I try not to hate these people. I try to say they're just ignorant. I'm trying to you know, educate them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have to educate you know, a harpoonist or, you know, or somebody killing a whale a little harder than we might have to educate the normal public. But nonetheless, I try to have an attitude that is a positive attitude not only to the people we're fighting, but to the people that are around me who often have a chip on their shoulder and are really angry. So my whole attitude and approach to the subject is one of of humor. And I think maybe, um, you know, some people get scared. I kind of just get interested in... And, you know, funny things pop into my head, maybe so I'm not, you know, hiding under the table or something. I, I, have, I have no idea why that happens, but I've oftentimes looked at, at situations as funny. And in the end, when I am in tough situations, whether it is in my job, and uh, for my job I pretty much go out and film big, sexy animals that can eat you and indigenous <laughs> people. So I get in fairly hairy situations in my job also. I just look at the hairier the situation, the funnier the stories are going to be at cocktail parties over Christmas dinner or something. <laughs> and, you know, I just look at the funny side just to keep me going. And it's, uh, it's, it's always worked for me to mm-hmm. keep me going. 
And it seems to, when I have discussed this with other people, like I give um, lectures to universities from time to time, I'm going down to the uh, Cinema Verde uh, Festival down in Gainesville, Florida, coming up at the, uh, at the end of uh, February. And mm-hmm. I'll speak with, with kids down there, and it's, and it's great to get them all excited, and, and they like the funny stories, and they don't want to think they're out there banging their heads against the wall. They want to think that they're out there really having some fun and, and doing something good at the same time. I mean, well, it's hear. far more interesting to do what you're doing than just to hold up a poster at a protest or, you know, march in the streets. I mean, I guess there's a time and a place for that. But one of the things that struck me so profoundly about your film is the difference between the kind of activism that you and Paul have been involved in and the quote unquote, I'm making air quotes right now, no one can see that, <laughs> activism that we're seeing like in the Occupy movement. I'm not downing on them, but I mean, you guys are in real danger. You're in real peril. The film does a great job of showing um, how you put your rear ends on the line to accomplish your work. It takes a lot of bravery and courage. Um, it's You're going into a combat zone. Well, you know? yeah, you have to you have to draw the line, and and like I say to people, if if you're afraid, you know, unless you're ready to conquer your fears, get off the boat because, you know, the minute you get on the boat, just realize that we're going to do what we say we're going to do, whether it's you know, whatever it is we say we're going to do, we're going to go out there and try to do it, and it is a dangerous situation. But in every movement, there's a place for diversity, so there is a place for people who protest, and there is a place for all the different types of people who want to get involved in whatever movement they want to get involved in. My thing is the environmental movement. I think that's like, you know, the leading movement of our time. It's way ahead of money, and, you know, it has to do with the food we eat, the air we breathe, you know, the uh, water we drink. So to me, that is the most important movement. And to get anybody involved... You can't expect everyone to go out there like me or, or Paul Watson. You know, God love him. He does it every day. I'm just kind of like the uh, consummate volunteer. I get to go home and live a real life. But, mm-hmm. you know, the people like that that you, you, know, you need in a movement, you need people just like that that are going to go out and occupy this or make everybody pay attention. The idea mm-hmm. in this day and age, we have so much information we're getting thrown at us, is to make people pay attention about some information. Whatever well, it is, I don't care. My whole thing is, I don't care what you're doing. As long as you're doing something positive, get your tail off the couch, get out in front of the TV, and go outside and do it. You'll find that when you start doing something, your neighbors will chip in, your friends will chip in, and pretty soon you yourself will start a movement. Mm-hmm. I don't know what movement that might be, but there's lots of things out there to get handled with, and you could keep you know, roses a lot. I mean, there are a billion things where passion can make a difference, and passion always makes a difference. So I'm just trying to push people out for any reason. Yep, there's so many needs in this world, and I love what you say about doing it in front of the cameras, that manufactured awareness that you talked about in your film. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but folks, don't go away. There's much, much more with Peter J. Brown right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. 
two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Peter J. Brown. He is the longest standing crew member of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society alongside Captain Paul Watson. He has spent the last 30 years collecting some of the most amazing, unprecedented um, footage of of Paul's missions and the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society's missions that Peter has not just been an observer of, he's been an active member of these missions for 30 years, and now he's got a new film coming out called Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist, and uh, I think a lot of us in the environmental movement think of him as anything but an eco-terrorist. He hasn't terrorized anything in the environment. He's been a stalwart champion for wildlife preservation, and we're so glad to have you on the show. Peter, I'd love for us to talk about some of the missions that you have depicted in the film. I'd like to start with the baby seal hunt. Um, that was whew, that was tough to watch, but I want you to talk to us about how the the hunt still continues. Your what you've seen, you know, the fur's been banned in Canada and the U.S. Why in the world is this still going on? And tell us what you've seen out there. Well, actually, since since my film was finished, the uh, it was actually the fur was just banned in Russia, which is pretty much. Uh, put a death, death nail to the hunt altogether. And um, the funny thing is, I was about uh, three years too early, uh, earlier than what was really going on. Yeah, uh-huh. the, the seal hunt is um, basically uh, organized welfare through the government of Canada. 
the government of Canada over the years, and, and you know, I'm not a big fan of any government, and, and I do, you know, I'm not a Canadian citizen, so whatever, I really have no right to um, criticize them, but I will. And uh, <laughs> they've Feel kind free. of messed up the fisheries, the whole cod fisheries. When the pilgrims came over, I lived in Massachusetts, and first came to Massachusetts, you could put a uh, bucket over the side in the Grand Banks and come up with fish. Well, you know, they pretty much organized the whole fisheries um, so that there are no fish in the Grand Banks anymore. It, it killed the fisheries, which, in fact, killed the fishermen, the local fishermen from Canada, Newfoundland. And the Newfoundland fishermen who fished, used to fish, you know, most of the year, in the seal, during the seal hunt, became sealers. They were the sealers. In the old days when people used sealskin coats and and whatever, they probably, you know, had a use. They made money in the winter. They made money in the summer. They was a pretty good profession. But with the botch, you know, the botching of the whole fisheries thing, so the dead, the Grand Banks are now a dead fisheries. They really can't fish them. That's also another story in my, in my film, The Cod Wars, yeah. we called it. Yeah. Um, they, uh, the poor people are put out of work. The government won't let them fish, and so... They don't have anything to do. They basically live up there on the coast. It's ice in the winter. It's it's nice in the summer, quite frankly. It's a tourist location up in Newfoundland. But they don't let them fish, so they have to do something. Well, government uh, says in uh, Canada, and I think it's if you work 13 weeks a year, you can collect unemployment. Well, it just so happens that the seal hunt is 13 weeks. So by employing these guys for 13 weeks and allowing them to seal, they can, in fact collect unemployment for the rest of the year so the government, you know, they don't feel like they're deadbeats and the government can, you know, feel good about the fact that they don't let them fish anymore or mm-hmm. feel at least, uh, you know, whatever, clever about the fact they don't let them fish anymore. So it's really a botched fisheries. It's a botched whole idea. It's, it's a paradigm that we really had to rethink. And having been up there a number of times, over the years, and actually I spent three weeks with the Magdalen fishermen and actually got a seal-killing license. We had to learn oh how to gosh. beat up a stuffed doll. It wasn't a seal, but you had to learn how to kill it quickly. And so I could actually get close to the seals and not get arrested when I took pictures and things. Um, this is over a number of years. Uh, I came to realize that these guys, as, as the price of seal fur went down, and about eight, ten years ago, they actually banned the killing of white coats, you know, the little white coat seals that yeah. everyone hugs. Uh-huh. You really can't kill those anymore. They don't kill those anymore. But the environmental groups, of course, still raise money on those because they're great money raisers, as I, you know, my whole thing in my film. Yeah. Um, and so those really don't get killed anymore, even though I myself have used them in films and stuff to show that, um, in my film I didn't, I showed them killing the real seals, the, yeah. what they call the yearlings. But over the years, the price of what they got for the yearlings went way down. The fur went down. The uh, you know Paul Watson made a big thing about penises. Well, yeah, they get six bucks a penis, and it was a good thing for the press, and it got everyone to to, to pay attention. Right. And um, so they got to a point that the sealers weren't making any money. Period. Even the guys going out weren't making any money. Mm-hmm. So the government was subsidizing it with big icebreakers, and why were they doing it? So they could work and get paid their 13 weeks and collect unemployment, and everybody was happy. But it got to a point that the sealers really weren't liking it because not only weren't they making much money, 
they were getting killed. You know, about in 2005, four of them died because the Canadian government tried to tow them out of the ice and their boat flipped over, and et cetera, et cetera. It's not a nice thing. Their boats are small. You know, we see shepherd boat is four or five times bigger than theirs, mm-hmm. and we get stuck in the ice from time to time. They can really get, you know, tweaked. You hear them at night, distress calls all over the place. I'm in trouble. The ice is coming in. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and the government's saving them. And, and so it's come to a point, I felt, as I say in my film, that the anti-sealing people were bringing so much money to the economy up there with every helicopter rented, every hotel rented, every rental car rented, every expensive restaurant filled up for the three or four weeks of the seal hunt by the environmental movement that they were sealing just to keep business going. You know, they didn't really want to do it. If anyone had given them any excuse not to seal, I think they would have quit. That's so interesting. When you said that in the in the film that you felt like ecotourism was actually feeding or pumping new life into the hunt, um, I, that that really shocked me. You know? Well, you know, just so you know, Paul Watson uh, thoroughly disagrees with me on this point. This is not his film. This is my film. But and we've discussed this a lot, and I uh-huh. always give him his point. But Paul Watson has a much uh, longer history with the seal hunters and a personal history where he's actually been beaten up and, and handcuffed and dragged through the uh, I mean, he has a personal animosity toward these people. Uh-huh. And I don't have the same personal animosity, maybe because I had hung out with them for three weeks, and I, and I tend to do that in my job, not just in the Sea Shepherd, I'm kind of chameleon where I'm a you know professional observer. I go live with people and take their pictures. And this is before yeah. reality television, you know, <laughs> was a deal. It was just me. <laughs> now there's eight cameras where I just like sit in a room and film people like Norman Vincent Peale. Now there'd be eight guys and cameras. And, <laughs> but that's just the way television has evolved. But by being a professional observer, I just looked at these people as basically the same kind of people that I grew up with on Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. Now my friends on Cape Cod aren't sealers, and they don't kill seals. But they were duck hunters, and I'm a big, not a big fan of people who shoot ducks either. Although without ducks unlimited, there'd be no salt marshes, so you know they're very conservation oriented. But I'm just saying they didn't seem to have any reason to really want the seals anymore. And it seemed to me, after living with them, that they really had just been on this rock in the ice all winter long. And spring came, and they got to get up at 6 in the morning, get in their pickup trucks, and go down and start drinking beer with their buddies. <laughs> and so for three weeks, they either got on a boat, and they'd drink beer, and they'd whack a few seals, and they'd tell stories, and they'd get away from the wife and kids from this little rock on the island. Not that the women aren't just wonderful there. <laughs> and that was more the reason, the tradition they talk about was more that. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, the government put into their heads that these seals were eating the fish. It was these seals were the reason they couldn't mm-hmm. fish, and they were fishermen. Their whole oh, life wow. was built around fishermen. The blue-nosed That's schooners and all. You know, it was, it was all about that. And so mm-hmm. the government put in their head, by criminalizing and bastardizing these poor seals, they got everybody mad at these seals to go out and whack them. So the whole thing was set up as just a weird type of giant swirling mess that really, in my opinion, could easily be solved if somebody just went up there and solved it. And it looks like it might have been done. 
just recently. Well, I hope that's the case. I, I want to ask you a personal question, Peter, because as you mentioned, you are a professional observer. But I want to know, what's it like to hold your camera steady when you're watching a massacre like that? You know, when you, when you film them doing what they did to the seals, I mean, that footage was really alarming. Tell us what's going on in your mind. What's, what's your emotion while you're taking this footage that you know is going to evoke intense emotion in others? How, how do you do it? Well, you know, that's, that's, a, that's actually a good question. It's asked quite a bit, and I don't know if I've ever answered it, but I'll do my best. The thing is that even in my job when I go, go and do real television, I might be doing a you know, race car or whatever. I have to get the car that explodes in the focus, and you know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever I do in my job, you you kind of are when you're looking through a camera are a bit detached about what is actually happening there. You're more interested in keeping it in focus, um, you know, keeping it exposed properly. All these things that you're drilled into your head when you are actually taking a picture. When you go and do something like a seal hunt, and you're there to quote unquote document the seal hunt, then you're kind of doing it the same way. Mm-hmm. And if you really wanted to sit there and morally try to justify it, and it happens because I deal with a lot of morally sure. <laughs> just people, and I, so I have the argument a lot, I'm, really, I'm not an animal rights person. I'm a conservationist. Conservationists believe in keeping wilderness areas alive and diversity and interdependence of species. I don't necessarily... Uh, as I used to tell the FBI when they'd come and interview me about uh, Rod Coronado and other animal rights people, I'd say, first line I want in the interview is, I eat animals. <laughs> now, I don't eat a lot of animals, <laughs> but I'm not an animal rights person. I am a conservationist. So to me, the death of one animal or two animals, if it can keep a whole species alive, is you know, something I can easily justify in my own moral and ethical you know, head. And so, to me, if I get the killing of one seal or two seals, although sad, it might save hundreds of thousands of seals. Mm -hmm. If I get them killing a whale, although sad, it might save hundreds of thousands of whales. And in the game that I am involved in, in in, uh, the media and the environmental business and, and, um, you know, the whole game of, you know, world (laughs) domination, so to speak, the changing of world thinking, then you sometimes have to sacrifice. And mm-hmm. I myself not only, you know, have to sacrifice, I have to sacrifice work sometimes, I have to, you know, sacrifice freedom sometimes, I have to sacrifice being away from my children at Christmas and other minor details, but nonetheless, sometimes things have to be sacrificed for the better good. Mm-hmm. And um, I look at these animals as uh, sometimes doing it. I mean, I don't go and gleefully get them killing every last one. After I get my shots, I try to get them to stop. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not as, as one might think. Mm-hmm. But you're there. You, 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 can, you can do... You, you saw the film, The Faroe Islands, Whale Kill is a huge whale kill, lots of blood, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. And there are hundreds of people there, and you can film it and therefore reach millions of people and say what's kind of a stupid thing it is and and that's another thing that's going the way of you know mercury poisoning i think but yeah. you you can show it to people or you can stand there against hundreds of people or two hundreds of people and go no no don't kill these poor animals and get nowhere 
I don't do it morally for myself. I do it for the better good of humanity or, you know, our, our, our world, really, culture, meaning that I'm not doing it to make myself feel good. If I wanted to do that, I'd give to Greenpeace. I'm doing it to save animals for the future and, and to make a real difference in changing people's ways of thinking so that we, in fact, have animals and biodiversity in the future, which I think is way more important than one or two little animals, who I think well, is cute, by the way. Is- the bigger vision. And, you know, for those of our listeners who are probably getting really excited to see this film, tell us uh, when they can do that, how they can do that. How, how is Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist going to be made available? Well, actually, uh, I've, been, <laughs> I've been calling it the most successful film not yet released. Because um, <laughs> we, we have actually uh, been playing it a few little places like... Um, you know, we had a pirate screening in Cannes. We weren't invited, but we went over there and rented a theater and got the most press of anybody in Cannes, except the guy talking about being Hitler. And we, we've shown it places, and everyone, you know, says, oh, it's great, it's great, but no one's really come out and, and got a distribution deal in order to put it into theaters. Well, you know, my feeling, quite frankly, is it's not the type of film you'd watch in theaters anyhow. You know, I have two older kids uh, 21 and 28, and they don't even watch this type of movie on theaters. They download it and and stream it and do all those things. Mm-hmm. So we actually are uh, putting in America a video on demand and iTunes, Amazon, uh, DVD release out for Earth Day of this year. And cool. as it gets closer, we'll see the advertising for it and exactly where the links are and the websites. And, and I'm just getting handed a piece of paper here. Um, you can actually go to our uh, Facebook or uh, account, which is uh, facebook.com uh, confessions film. Okay. And we actually have a website uh, also, www.confessions, that's with an F, film.com. And all the details will be on that. Very um, cool. You know, I don't want to yeah. get myself in trouble and say something stupid on the radio, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I do want to get myself in trouble and say something stupid on the radio, but not about the release of my movie. <laughs> <laughs> about something important. Well, <laughs> so anyhow, I hopefully have... at that time people will download it and see it and talk about it because I think there are, it's, it's, it's not the issue so much as the way of thinking that, that, um, that I'm hoping to get across. You know, I do feel that that it's time for our, you know, you know, I've had a lot of anger. A lot, there's a lot of anger out there and, and hate. And, and um, But we've won the revolution now. You know, everybody wants to be green. We've got to figure out how to govern, and I think that's going to take, you know, a little bit more cooperation and, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, positive thinking to, to make those things happen. And that's well, the message your of my movie. Is, is, has done a great job of humanizing both sides and, and helping people. I think, I think people are going to get past some of the anger and get – uh, closer to understanding. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but we've got lots more with Peter J. Brown, so don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. one 472 5787 That's it. That's it. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Peter J. Brown. He is best known for being the first mate to Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. You may have seen him in Whale Wars if you're into uh, Animal Planet Discovery Channel shows. But, you know, Peter's so much more. He is a, a media guru. He's a television producer. He knows how to use the camera to affect change. And his new film, Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist, is a collection of missions and insider information, insider footage that you won't see anywhere else. Over the 30 years that he's been alongside Captain Paul Watson, you get to see an insider's point of view of both the tragedies they've witnessed, the humor of life aboard the Sea Shepherd, and and some of the danger that they faced, and really being on the front lines of what a lot of people in the environmental movement read about, pontificate about, talk about, but haven't seen. And Peter, I would love for you to talk about the piece in your film where you cover drift net fishing, because honestly, until I saw your film, I really wasn't up to speed on on that whole operation. So talk to us about what you've done and, and what you've seen in the drift net fishing world. Well, actually, the drift net fishing world is a, a relatively major success in the environmental movement. Um, back in the uh, mid-80s and uh, late-80s, Actually, the, a lot of those footage was the 90s when we got them changed in 1990. Um, there was drift net fishing being done by, um, they had at the time registered 1,800 ships of Japan and Taiwanese nature. Um, drift nets were actually, um, they called them curtains of death because they sat about, mm, they were about 30 feet uh, deep, and they floated on nets across the surface, but they were up to the longest one ever measured was 175 miles long. Oh, my stars. Um, the ones we measured in, in the Pacific were 40 miles long. But the ships would go out in, in, in groups of six, and they would set every night uh, 40 miles of drift net each ship. 
Um, and they would go, and in the morning when the fish came up to feed at night, they'd come and bump into this curtain of death, and a lot of them would get caught. Some of them wouldn't, some of you know, and, and die. And um, birds especially would see the, the dead fish and go after them and get caught in the net. Hundreds of birds. They lost millions of birds in the drift netting years. Mm-hmm. And they would set these nets every single night, and they set enough nets, if you did the math, to circle the globe at least two and a half times every single oh. night. Gosh. And literally fishing operations were being wiped out across the world. I mean, they were extremely good at what they were doing. And um, and we did not just Sea Shepherd. Uh, Greenpeace had a lot of issues about that. I think they had uh, they went after them 12 times, never found them. But actually, Sea Shepherd went after them three times and found them every time. And we actually ultimately couldn't get the public to pay attention. I mean, it's a huge thing. I mean, you're, le- you're losing millions of seabirds, millions of millions of fish. And, and actually, there was so much net being set that we always claimed that dolphins and whales were being killed in it. But we never really... It was so hard to find a dolphin and a whale killed. We only... Over all the years I got involved, only one dolphin did we ever see killed in the net. But the, that wasn't the point. The point is, it's easy to get the public involved in an issue like drift netting if you can name an animal that's being affected. If Willie the whale was being affected, then you could probably get people really interested. Mm-hmm. But Willie the whale, as hard as we would try to fake the story, was not really being effective. For whatever reason, they weren't necessarily getting caught up in these things. They were getting mm-hmm. caught up in nets, but it wasn't necessarily these drift nets, which right. were made out of monofilament, really little thin and so what we decided to do is go ram in our, you know, Paul Watson and his infinite <laughs> wisdom. <laughs> decided to ram, start ramming into them <laughs> until the public noticed. And quite frankly, the first year we rammed into them, we got uh, two of them. And the funny thing is there were six boats uh, fishing in formation, and the first boat didn't even radio the second boat, <laughs> you know, that they got hit or somebody was attacking <laughs> them. So this is how, you know, efficient or money conscious they were they weren't you know they didn't even tell their buddy that they got whacked and their buddy (laughs) finally had to get whacked before the third guy cut his net and took off (laughs) and but those pictures were ratings gold they went around the world and really got not only sea shepherd starting to get noticed you know so paul watson could put his word out he gives speeches and writes books but the whole issue of drift netting was getting noticed because here are some crazy people ramming into boats 2,000 miles north of, of Hawaii where everyone could die, God bless. No, you know, it wasn't that bad. We didn't do it that way. We, mm-hmm. you know, we were pretty good at ramming boats. No one ever was injured or hurt or anything. But, right. you know, it looked to the public like we were doing that, and they started to take notice. And in 1991, drift nets were banned worldwide on any ocean. In 1992, we went out and whacked another one just for good nature. <laughs> and um, and but pretty much drift netting went away as a fisheries. Unfortunately, like in any environmental disaster, when one fisheries is shut down, another one pops up, and a lot of the boats became longliners, which is, you know, a little bit more selective, but still, you know, not the best of fisheries. I felt like the footage in your film that, that covered this operation did more than just show 
what was going on on the bridge of, of the Sea Shepherd when you were ramming, uh, which was really interesting. I mean, just to catch the conversation and, and the mood of the bridge um, as you're doing this. But I thought that you captured some footage that kind of demonstrated some character traits about Paul Watson that I don't know that just any old camera person who didn't know him as well as you do would have picked up on. The first part, when you showed how difficult it is to find a drift net operation, and then somehow how Captain Watson, just with this gut feeling, found him every time he went looking for it, that was pretty amazing. But then <laughs> yeah. the, the, the second That's the piece, mystical part of him. I know. That was... That was insane. And I want you to talk about that. But I also thought that when you showed some footage of why he chose not to ram one of the the ships at one point, I felt like that spoke volumes about who he is. Talk about both of those sets of footage and and what you wanted to depict, you know, in that part of the film. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, the quick thing about, you know, a lot of people, Paul Watson has quite a reputation. He's been doing this a lot of years and there's a lot of books about him. a lot of movies, and you know everybody makes him some sort of hero, and um, et cetera, et cetera. And you know I have a tremendous amount of respect for him, and he is a very good friend of mine, and uh, he is a hero. But um, he's also a human, and he's he's funny, and he's uh, you know, and he's a human, and he's a great strategist, and he's been running the environmental movement basically from the beginning. Bob Hunter was the original one, but you know Paul was his right hand man for years, and until he started his own group, Sea Shepherd. Mm-hmm. But, and he knows, as bad as anybody, that we're fighting basically, in a way, a fake war. You know, if you go to New Guinea and you look at the cannibals and you see the National Geographic poster boys pictures of them, and they kind of have what the, I call a ritualistic war. Somebody gets hurt, the whole tribe goes up in a line and starts screaming, yelling, and then they dance around, and then it's funny that they show their their naked butts to the other side, and then the arrows fly, and the guys get behind their war shields, and the arrows bounce off the war shields. And then the other side does the same thing. They do the dance, they do the whatever, they moon the other group, they shoot the <laughs> arrows, and then they do this. This carries on until someone gets killed. And when someone gets killed, they all go home, and the war's over, because if a lot of people got killed, they'd all die, because they're hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. So they can't afford to lose more than one person, and they really can't even afford to lose one person. Usually they're hoping for an injury so they can go home. But mm-hmm. they need to fight the war. Well, we in the environmental movement, quite frankly, would li- are fighting a war. We're fighting a war to save species on our planet. We're saving biodiversity. The human species has gotten so big and so overabundant that we're starting to wipe out the very species that keep us humans alive, the things that clean our water, the things that clean the earth, the things that grow our food, just the stuff that keeps us alive, we are starting to kill off because we're overpopulating ourselves. And so, you know, it comes to a point that someone like Paul knows that in this war, it would be probably good to kill off the other side, but we're not fighting that kind of war. We want to win it. We're fighting a media war. We're fighting fighting a fake war like the cannibals. Mm-hmm. We can't lose. We can't afford to have anyone injured. We certainly can't afford to have anyone killed. Right. Because if we had anyone killed, we would lose the war. It might feel good, and you always get these young kids, oh, yeah, we want to get them. 
you know, chill out, pal. We, no one gets hurt here. You know, if anyone's going to get hurt, it's going to be you. You're not going to hit that guy. He's going to hit you. Right. And so Watson really knows that. He's been doing this a long time. He's really a brilliant tactician and strategist, and he reads all that. He's well-read. You can listen to him lecture. He knows all about this stuff. And mm-hmm. I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And even when I don't agree with him all the time, he he's right. I, over well, the years, have helped him get it out into the media to, to, to make the point into a bigger audience than he mm-hmm. does it. And as far as finding the drift netters and stuff goes, like I said in my movie, he has a mystical character about him. I look at it as just dumb luck. <laughs> I've been with him a long time, and I don't find him a mystic at all. I mean, some people really look at him as some you know, really mystical character. They treat him like the Pope. or now with the TV show, they're like a rock star, which is okay, God love him. But he, I don't think he has that. I think he has very good intuitions. I think he follows the intuitions. And as Bob Hunter said, Bob Hunter was the first president of Greenpeace and is in my movie. Uh, You know, Paul feels the nearness of things. He feels when the guys are close. You know, he just has a feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think it has something to do with the Sea Shepherd mission and the fact that really it is a pretty good mission. I mean, there's a lot of environmental groups out there, and you can look at the politics and the money and everything. Sea Shepherd over the years has been very noble. I still volunteer after 30 years. Most people still volunteer. I mean, it's a bigger organization now. They do need some you know people paid. But for years, no one was paid on it. And I always felt that, as I used to tell my kids when they were little, don't worry, Daddy will be okay. God is a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I always felt that, that we had some sort of, we were doing what was right. We were coming back. I never felt the dread that we were doing what was wrong. I always felt that what we were doing was absolutely right. And, you know, I think Paul feels that, and, and I do think he has a special something about him <laughs> good luck, as I would call it, that makes him successful in that right, and, and, and he's very successful. I mean, what, you, what we did in those days when we would find drift net fleets, you'd uh, consider an area the size of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no roads in that area, but it is flat, so you can get around it. And consider there are 1,800 motorhomes parked out there that are moving uh, probably 50 miles a night to different locations. And you in all your wisdom, go looking for them on a bicycle. <laughs> That's what it's like finding these guys out at sea. That's what it's uh. like finding them at sea. So it, it's pretty amazing. But And I always laugh because, you know, Paul always finds them. I used to warn people when I would make movies or, you know, people would say, we're making a movie. I'd say, well, you realize <laughs> we might never find these guys. But he always does. He's found the guys in Antarctica every time, too. And, and you know, God love him. He's good at it. And I'm glad well, somebody think- can find them and... Wish there were 10,000 more guys like him out there, and then it would be 10,000 times easier to find him. Well, and and the fact that he's so comfortable having everything documented just shows that um, what you're doing is so forthright and honest and full of integrity. The transparency of his operation, thanks to your camera work, um, it makes the missions that you've shown in your film, Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist, something to really be proud of. And it's quite a legacy that you've created over this past 30 years. And uh, I'm so thrilled that I got the chance. I feel so honored to have 
been able to see the film already. I know that our listeners are going to want to see it as well. So, folks, find that Facebook page. Get out there when you get to Facebook and look for Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist. Look for it on Amazon as uh, we near Earth Day. And, Peter, just thank you so much for being with us. But even more, thank you for what you've done for our planet. Well, thank you very much. And everybody out there listening, you know, um, you know, get out there and do something yourself. There's a lot to be done, and uh, you'll find it uh, only makes you better, not a worse person. You're so right. Thanks, Peter. Everybody, thanks for listening to Go Green Radio. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Until then, have a great week, and go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.